Remember what John says when he sees Christ for the first time, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And would that we would have the same this morning as we will have an opportunity to come to this table that we would give confession and witness and say, behold, this is the broken body and the shed blood of the Lamb of God who has come to take away our sins and the sins of the elect um, so that the family of God could be bigger than we could ever imagine. And so what a beautiful thing that we get to look at these things this morning. And it's, it's all part, and we've talked about this some through this series, but it, it is part of one of the things that I think that we often fail to do as God's people, and it's an act of remembering. But the great thing for us as God's people is it's not just that we look back, right? It's that we also anticipate and we look forward. So often we stay caught somewhat in the past and don't realize that actually the kingdom is moving forward, that we are arcing toward the second advent or the final advent of Christ when he returns and makes all things new. And knowing that that is coming grants us this incredible freedom for how we live between the now and the not yet. Amen? Because if we had no idea what was coming, if it was this cosmic kind of crapshoot, if it was a gamble with how it may turn out, That would deeply affect how we live. But we as sons and daughters of the Most High God have the beautiful opportunity to know how the story ends and to know what is coming when Christ returns. And so therefore, how we live between these times, between the advents, we get this phenomenal opportunity to truly be free indeed. Which there's nobody in here who would say, I don't think, unless you're truly postmodern and you're thoroughly as mean as I was when I was a, uh, an anti-theist, no one would say, I don't want greater freedom. No, in fact, every one of us, that's what we're straining for at some level, right? That's why we work the hours that we do. That's why the teenagers push the buttons they push. That's why we do all the things that we do is because we think we want greater freedom. But what we fail to understand is that the greatest freedom of all is to be a slave of Christ himself. Because that sets us truly free indeed from shame and guilt and the power of judgment and the grave. And so the Passover is this beautiful picture of all of those things, but it's an incomplete picture. It only looks back. It doesn't necessarily anticipate and look forward as it ought. But there is a shadow that moves forward to the Lord's Supper. So we'll make that connection this morning. But the first question that I have for us is why is a purposeful act of remembering God's goodness to his people important? Maybe a better question is, is it important to remember God's goodness at all? Well, I would hope that it would be a very important thing. And I would hope that it would be a common practice of us, his people, right? And the question I have for you is, where do you ever stop and take a moment and just ask the question, where has God been good to me these days or this week or this year? See, that purposeful act of remembrance is incredibly important because we get lost sometimes, don't we? We, we look at the world and we say the same thing that the author of Hebrews said in chapter 2, which I think is one of the most honest things that's ever been written in Scripture. He says, Christ reigns, though it does not look like it right now. There's moments where we look around and say, if God is truly good and in charge, I'm, I'm failing to see it. I had friends who were in Rwanda when the Hutus and the Tutsis slaughtered each other by the million in a six-week time frame. And many times, people sought refuge in churches. 
and the churches would call and say, the Tutsis are here, come and slaughter them. And they would. They'd slaughter them right there in the churchyard. In fact, just this morning I was reading um, a blog post by someone who was in Rwanda, and you can still see the stains on the brick where the children were slain. And so in those moments, it's difficult to remember, isn't it, that God is, in fact, good. And yet... For those of us who have been able to see that history unfold, what happened in Rwanda in 1994, there's this beautiful reconciliation project that is ongoing that is even more beautiful than what they had going before the grand slaughter. And so God is, in fact, good, and he takes and reconciles things that we can't even begin to fathom that he could reconcile. And so it's critical for us as people to take a time and do that. One of mine and my wife's Sabbath practices is to stop and take a moment and answer the question, how has God been good this week? And if any of you ever hang out with us on the Sabbath, we're going to pose it to you as well. And it's the one legalistic thing that we have in our lives. So you have to answer this question. And if you can't answer it, then you've got to answer why you can't answer the question. <laughs> and so um, anyway, but I think it's a very important question for us to consider as God's people. And if you don't have a regular practice of that, I want to challenge you. I, I, I truly believe it'll change your heart. It'll change your gratitude. It'll change your mindset positionally if you take the time to stop and say, how has God been good? And overlook no simple thing. One of the things I often and have been very moved by is that there's so many things outside of my control, so many things that I take for granted that I think I ought to enjoy that ought to be given to me that only when it's taken away do we realize it wasn't owed to me in the first place. So I would rather be grateful before I lose it. Amen? So, It is critical for us as God's people to take a time to remember that he is good. And and then how that will impact our hope and our ability to live between the now and the not yet. This is one of the reasons that God gives his people these means of grace. For the Old Testament, it was the Passover. And he told them, you need to do that. Year by year, I want you to celebrate this and remember, I delivered you from Egypt. I am the one who brought you out. I am the one who preserved you. I am the one who gave you all that you needed. And in the Lord's Supper, he is saying the exact same thing to us. I am the one who has delivered you from sin. I am the one who has delivered you from death. I am the one who will place you firmly on heaven's shore where you will enjoy me for an eternity. And so it's critical for us to make sure that we are taking seriously these moments and that we not come unprepared and that we not take them lightly and just think, well, because so-and-so's taking it, I better take it. I don't want to be the guy that gets noticed for not taking it because then that brings up questions and probably some elder's going to visit my house and I don't want to go through all that. No, it is better for you to let, let the elements pass over you and pass you by than for you to take them wrongly because of what it does to your heart and your soul as far as what, it, what your understanding is true about those elements. And so... Um, you will hear that more about that from Sam as he will fence the table this morning. If you would turn to Exodus chapter 12, let's begin in verse 1. And we'll walk through um, God's giving of the Passover. What's interesting about this is this is occurring basically just prior to the 10th plague. So it's within the context of the 10th plague. If you remember, the 9th plague was the darkness that fell on Egypt that was so thick you could feel it. And what was interesting is God's people did not, were not affected by the darkness at all. 
And some commentators believe that the darkness fell actually so that the Egyptians, uh, so that the Israelites could prepare for the Passover. It gave them time to get everything together because the period of darkness was about three days. And the selecting of the lamb, you were supposed to select the lamb on the 10th day and then it wasn't to be slaughtered until the 14th day. And so uh, here they have just gone through these nine terrible plagues the Egyptians have and Pharaoh's not going to listen to the 10th. And the reason he's not going to listen to the 10th is because Pharaoh thinks he is God. And the reason that God is striking a blow at the firstborn is to in fact declare that no Pharaoh, you are not God and you can't preserve not one of your little ones. And you got to remember too, what did Pharaoh do to the boys of Israel one time. He slaughtered them in mass and sought to slaughter Moses, but his own daughter betrayed him. Not knowingly in toto, but she did, and it paved the way for the gospel to go forward. And so we got to remember Pharaoh's hands are covered with the blood of the Egyptian boys. So he is not without excuse. And so here God is preparing the people to be able to leave Egypt and be prepared for worship. This is critical. The Passover is actually a time of preparation, a setting apart of the people of God for worship. Remember, why is he delivering them from Egypt? So they can go and do whatever they want? No, very specifically, he is delivering them from Egypt so that they can worship the Lord their God in spirit and in truth without encumbrance. He is delivering them so that they can dwell with the Lord their God. Right? Remember, that's the whole of the story, isn't it? That God longs to dwell with you, his people. He is not interested in all the other things that we've made it out to be. He's not interested in your happiness necessarily, because your truest happiness should be to dwell with him without shame and guilt. Amen? And so he's not interested in you necessarily being one thing or another. The only thing he's interested in you being is a child of the Most High God, son or daughter. That's his greatest interest. And so he's giving them this ordinance to prepare them, to set them apart so that they will be holy and and basically prepared for worshiping a holy God in the wilderness. What a beautiful picture that this will be. So here's how the scripture, if you would hear the word of the Lord this morning, Exodus 12 verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Let me pause right there for just a second. I love that statement. This will be the beginning of months for you. What what is this? Your deliverance from Egypt, your deliverance from slavery will mark the calendar new. What a beautiful thing that now even time will be marked by the salvation of God, that they can't even get around. Even their calendar will testify to who they are and whose they are. What a beautiful thing that God is giving them that every time the year rolls around anew, they cannot help but remember what the Lord their God has done for them. So the question I have for you and for for myself is, what marks the beginning of months for you? What is your spiritual birth date, if you will? I know some of you may find that kind of weird, and I know some people make more out of that than other people do, but it's an important, it's an important thing for us to remember that when the moment at which we became and were aware of becoming a child of God, that marks a whole new life for us. We have become a new creation. Isn't that worthy of our celebration and remembrance? Isn't that worthy of us to go back and say, Lord, thank you that the calendar changed on this day? I've even come to understand it in in an even deeper way. 
Um, it, it is on that day for me that the clock stopped. Uh-oh, Cameron sounds like he's getting a little new agey and abstract up there. But let me, let me illustrate. Eternity began in a, in a way for me that was never real to me before. See, I'm no longer chasing the clock. I am no longer chasing after anything. I have received everything that I will ever need between now and eternity. I've been granted the fullness of the person and work of Christ so that I can go boldly before the throne of grace anytime I have need to celebrate, to receive, to be, to, to be reminded of my forgiveness. Whatever it is I need, I now have access to the fullness of the spiritual blessings. Amen? And so I no longer am bound by the clock. Yes, someday, if Christ doesn't return first, I will lay in the grave. But does that mean time stopped for me? No, that didn't, that's just passage for me. I get to now, if God would, would grant me that before he returns, I'd rather see him return. But if not, I will then see in full as I make that passage in ways that I have no earthly idea about now. And so that's been very helpful for me to understand that eternity has already begun for me. I have been so set free that not even the clock dictates who I am anymore. And so the same is true for you. If you are made new in Christ, eternity has already begun for you in a, in a way that was not possible before you knew Christ. And what a beautiful thing that's worthy of our meditation. And what a beautiful thing that is worthy of us saying thank you to the Lord that he would take and deliver us from the tyranny of everything. He goes on. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now, what's beautiful about this, this is the first time that the entire people of God have been brought together and referred to as a congregation. They're now beginning to coalesce. Now, now notice that God is the one who's intervened and made them into the people of God. They didn't decide they were the people of God. He has called them together to be the people of God, just like he's done for you and I. We didn't decide that we would be Christians per se. And if you did decide, you want to reconsider that a bit. Because you don't want it to be on your terms. Because your terms are limited. And your terms are horrifically conditional, where his terms, while have the condition that you be in Christ, in union with Christ, are far more freeing than your terms could ever be. And so it's important for us to remember that it is God who calls us to be his people. It is God who provides all that is needed for us to be his people. And that's what he's doing right here is he's called the congregation of Israel together and saying, this will mark you as my people. And he goes on to tell them that the head of the household is to select a lamb. And usually a household was constituted by about 10 folks. And you're going to see in just a minute that there's a provision if your household didn't include 10. You could get together with another household to make sure that you were able to consume all of the lamb. And that's an important reality that I'll get to in just a second. Here's verse 4. And it says, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, there's a, some discussion about why did they keep the lamb for four days. Now, more than likely, it was so that the, the head of the household would have time to examine the lamb to ensure that it was without blemish to ensure that what he was offering to God was the best of what he had. 
Listen to what J.A. Mortier says about this. He says, only what is perfect is acceptable to God. Now, why is that? J.A. Mortier says, because that is what is commiserate with his dignity. Again, we, we want to give to, to God what is actually reflective of who we think him to be. And that's what he's calling for here, that only a holy God can receive that which is perfect without blemish. He goes on to say, but it seems very likely behind the demand for perfection lies the truth that while the imperfect can die for its own sins, only the sinless can bear the sins of another. And so it's interesting that this, this lamb had to be without blemish, that it had to be spotless. Now, why would that be? Why would that be an important thing in this whole Passover process? Why couldn't it be just any old lamb that you had? Well, because this lamb was dying for something. This lamb was standing in the stead of something. This lamb was a substitute. This lamb was atoning as a substitute. The blood that was shed was necessary. Anytime there is sin, blood must be shed. Anytime something needs to be made holy, blood must be shed. And so this is right in line with that and indicates that the Passover is the beginning, really, of the sacrificial system, in a sense. It is a foreshadow of what will come. It's pointing forward. And it goes on, verse 7, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Now, why would that be? Why would it be necessary to make sure that you consumed all of it? Because what the Lord had provided was sufficient. And there was no need for you to carry some of it with you in case you got in a pinch. Uh Uh-oh, I just messed up. Let me eat a little lamb and get back right with God. No, his deliverance was total. Did Israel ever go back into slavery in Egypt? No. Can you who've been delivered by union with Christ be taken back and judged again? anew, afresh, because you've messed up in some new way that God somehow didn't anticipate. No, and that's good news. It's good news that Jesus is complete because he himself was the perfect spotless lamb and the blood has been applied to you, God's child. That means that your sins, listen to me, past, present, and future have been atoned for. Now, some of you, I know, are slightly concerned with what I just said. And your concern is this, whoa, 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 future sins. Now, now, Cameron, that's going to make some of us want to run out and do something terrible because we think that we've been atoned for. I mean, you know, you go letting this antinomianism thing, it's, it's rampant, right? No. No, what that sets you free to do, in fact, brothers and sisters, is it sets you free to worship in spirit and truth. See, if you thought that what Christ did for you somehow sets you free to sin, then I would question whether or not you've been set free at all. And in fact, I would say you're in a very dangerous place and you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
If you think that somehow what Christ has done is now carte blanche for you to go and behave any way you want to, you do not understand the gospel. And you're in a very dangerous place. In fact, you're in a more dangerous place than the radical anti-theist who denies it in toto. And so, because it was so complete, they were able and it was necessary that they consume it all because that meant that they would understand that it was finished for them. They would never return to Egypt. There's another element in here as well that they had to eat bitter herbs. And part of the bitter herbs was to help remind them of how bitter their experience was in slavery. What's interesting about that is remember what we just preached from a few weeks ago when the people were crying about their food situation and the manna from heaven and the quail, how quickly they forgot. They kept saying, well, we, when we were in Egypt, we had all kind of good food. Was that true? They weren't even a month and a half out. So it is incredibly important for us to remember the bitterness of what it meant to be without Christ and to be in slavery. A beautiful example of this and one of the most salient, um, my daughter, Kimberly, when she was about nine years old, uh, the church that we were at decided to do a Passover Seder meal. You ever done a Passover Seder meal? Okay. And if I remember right, the bitterness in the Passover Seder meal is horseradish. And there's like a dollop of horseradish. Um, and so here we are at this thing and my daughter, we're, it's the point where we're supposed to take in the bitterness. Okay. So my daughter takes it in and beautifully, probably the most salient example of this I've ever seen, she looks at me and tears began to fill her eyes and I'm going, swallow it. She's like, I'm like, just swallow it. She runs out the front door and she throws up in the bushes. Now why is that beautiful? Because she couldn't bear the bitterness that Christ bore. And I said, that is the most beautiful example, and I'll never do another Seder meal because that covers it. <laughs> but she did. She was, and I told her, I said, sweetheart, you gave us the, the best example. And so it kind of alleviated the, the problem of her throwing up in front of everybody in the front yard. And so, um, but this is to remind us. And so th as part of our remembering, it is very important um, that we also remember the bitterness from which we have been delivered lest we confuse ourselves, lest we begin to fool ourselves or be fooled into thinking that, yeah, I, you know, I, I get it, but I can kind of dabble, right? Now that I'm a Christian, I'm better equipped to handle sin. No, you're not. Not at all. In fact, if you're a Christian, you should all the more recognize that, no, you are so poorly equipped that you should flee from it. You're so fragile you're so broken, you're so unable to handle it that you should go nowhere near it lest you be burned. And so this bitterness is a reminder of that and that needs to be part of our remembering as well. Now, am I talking about self-flagellation that you should just always go around uh, bemoaning the fact that you are a dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinner? No, not at all. If you've been delivered in Christ, you're, you're a whole new creation. And that is not your identity before the Lord your God. But I do think it is important for you to remember what you've been delivered from so as to have an appreciation for how truly good God is. So, again, we have, <coughs> excuse me, we have this beautiful example of God calling for to be given something that is commiserate with who he is. And, and let's think about this for just a second. Um, think about the gifts that you have given to people. 
Think about the gifts that you've received and, and how that has communicated who you are. For me, it, there's a very painful example, and I call it the darkest Christmas. Um, my mother was an addict, um, and I think I've shared with you that she overdosed in 2001. But at one of the peaks of her addiction, my stepfather was out of prison for a brief period of time, and it was around Christmas time. And um, even as an eight-year-old, I knew when things were not going well. I knew when they were falling off into addiction. And for whatever reason, um, Christmas morning, no, nobody was up. It was not the normal Christmas morning that we expect here in America. And so once my family got up around 1 o'clock that afternoon, my mother came in and she said, hey, there's a few things for you there that we found at a yard sale. Because that's all we could afford. But I knew that they had afforded their drug habit, which at times was in excess of about $500 per day. What do you think that communicated to me as a child that my mother said, hey, there's a few things for you that we found at a yard sale. Merry Christmas. And she walked back into the other room. What do, you, what do you think the gravity of that was? What do you think that said to me as her child? That I wasn't worth very much at all. And in fact, for over 30 years, um, Christmas was always the most bitter time for me. That's when I ate the bitter herb. And my wife will tell you, I couldn't be in the house when she, my wife loves Christmas. And I, don't, I, I get it, the Christmas tree and the garland, the pagan thing. I, I understand all that. Don't give me, you talk to her, okay? Um, but, but she, I would always have to leave the house because I couldn't take the, the putting up or the taking down of the Christmas tree. Because on that Christmas day, I was the one who had to take the Christmas tree down because no one else was capable or sober enough to do it. And I remember the light of that day. I remember the way the light came through the window. I remember it all. And for 38 years, it was bitter gall. And then the Lord, one Christmas, my wife asked me, I'm, I used to be a professional photographer, and my wife asked me to take a picture of the Christmas tree, and I said, you cruel woman, get behind me, Satan. That's not true, I didn't say that. But, but it was, I, I, I didn't know if I could do it, so I did it. And as I sat there, for whatever reason, the Lord just washed over me and, and just said, listen, I, I love you, my child, and I, I've never treated you as your family treated you. I've treated you better. Be delivered from this weight. And since then, it hadn't bothered me a lick. And the Christmases are much sweeter for me now because they're no longer about the past and sin, but about the second advent that is coming. I now look forward instead of staying quagmired in the past. But again, the point of that story really is to say that we do, when we give people things, we are communicating things to them with what we give them. And when you get something, when somebody says, look, I just found this laying on the side of the road here. Happy birthday. Merry Christmas. That indicates that we don't have much value for them. How do you think God feels? How do you think God feels when we offer him this blemished and tortured lamb? How do you think God feels when, when we act as if we have nothing to give him at all? We don't have time for him. We don't, we don't have time for his word. We don't, have to, we don't have the money to give. We don't have anything to offer him. What do you think it communicates to him as to what we think about him? What do you think it's communicating to your own heart? See, if you're undervaluing God, it's really not him that you're diminishing because he cannot be diminished. It is you who are being diminished in your own heart in view of him. And so this is why it's so critical for us to take time to remember, 
to, to look back as we look forward as well. To have practices that force us and, and give us the grand opportunity to celebrate how good God is. Turning back to the text, verses 11 through 13 say this. In this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Well, let me pause there for just a moment because um, George Bush says, and again, not the president of either, one, either kind. Um, he says this wonderful thing in his commentary. He says, the order for observing a religious ordinance in such a circumstance as the Israelites were now in, in the midst of the hurry and the bustle of their preparation for departure, teaches us that whatever the urgency of the business or cares that occupy us, still the claims of religion are paramount and that nothing should crowd out the duties of worship and devotion from our minds. Now let me ask the most piercing question of all. When life gets busy for you, what's the first thing to go? What's the first thing that you begin to take margin away from? Let's be honest. If we're honest, you say, I, I just didn't have time for my devotions. I, don't, I just don't have the time to pray like I ought. I, we didn't have time to come to worship this morning because we, we had these things that we had to do. Again, where do we steal from when, 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 when we get busy? And where ought we not take away from? Where ought we protect? What, what should we protect as vital to our lives? What should orient our lives? Should the busyness of the world, should the dictates of the world that say you have to be this or that, should that be what dictates the rhythms of our lives? I hope not. Because what the world dictates is chaos. What the world calls for you to be is whatever it needs you to be at the moment to support whatever it wants to be. And that is ever-changing and shifting sand and is no foundation from which to work at all. And we, the people of God, are, should be making sure that our lives are fashioned around the rhythms that God has created for us, his people. And ensuring that we are not cutting short the means of grace that he has given to us so richly and so beautifully. Again, I think we, we presuppose on his grace sometimes far too much. God will be there when I get ready for him. What does the word say? Seek the Lord while he may be found. What does that indicate? It ain't up to you. It's not up to you to find him when you're ready. It is far more important for you to seek him while he may be found, while he is calling to you, while he is saying to you, hey, I love you, my child, let's spend time together. And think about how that may change us and the franticness with which we live and the harriedness with which we live. If we were to confess, most of us would say, man, I'm just, I feel like I'm running crazy. I feel like I'm just going all the time. Now, am I saying that you need to cut a bunch of stuff out? No. Actually, I'm saying you need to make sure that you leave in what is most important. I'm not here to bind your conscience on any one thing other than to suggest to you that these means of remembering, these means of engaging the Lord your God are incredibly important to your overall health, and it changes how the clock works for you. And I've seen this. And the Word goes on and says... At the end of verse 11, it is the Lord's Passover. 
Well, that's an interesting statement now, isn't it? Why is it the Lord's Passover? What did the people do to deliver themselves? Nothing. Other than be obedient to the simple thing that he told them to do. He didn't give them much to do, did he? Find a spotless lamb, one years old. They sh- he would, and who provided that? Who early in the book of Exodus ensured that the, the people of God had better uh, farm animals than all of Egypt? God did. So he'll, he'll provide even the blemish. They're not even going to have to look very far. All they got to do is tighten their belts and get ready to go. What does that mean that they are? It means that they can dress knowing they have already been delivered. They can prepare knowing that it is finished and done. It is a certainty. Because think about this. How cruel would it be if they had gotten ready and done all this stuff and then the Egyptian army swept through and slaughtered them in their homes? What would be the view of God in that position? He is impotent and he is not there. But instead, they were able to dress and get ready knowing that this God was going to deliver them factually and they would be delivered in such a way that they could prepare knowing it had been done. The same is true for us. We too get to come knowing that it is finished. We get to come to worship every single Sunday. We get to approach our Bibles every single morning for devotion. We get to approach the throne of grace in prayer every single solitary day knowing that it is finished and we, his people, have been delivered and that we will not be left holding the bag. This is not some cosmic joke. Amen? And we get to come every morning knowing, in fact, that in truth, God is good. What a beautiful thing to know, even in the midst of times of doubt, even in the moments when we say, I'm not, ex- I'm not exactly sure how good he is, but I know that he is good. I don't know how we're going to get out of this, but I know that he will deliver us as people. I don't know how the provision's going to come in, but I know that God provides and he doesn't let his people go begging bread. Amen? And so, what a beautiful thing that we get to come into this lineage and we get the opportunity to make time for the Lord our God. We get the opportunity to go before a God who loves us. It's beautiful what John Currid says about this being the Lord's Passover. He says, the Passover is not primarily about the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, nor is it mainly about the humiliation of Pharaoh in Egypt. Rather, its essential purpose is the glorification and exaltation of Yahweh. It is Yahweh's Passover. Again, remember, why were the people being set apart? The putting of the blood on the lintel did what? It marked out distinctly who were the people of God. And they were being delivered, and and, and essentially this sacrifice was being made so that they could worship the Lord their God. So that's why this is the Lord's Passover, because it's about him designating a people for himself to worship him and to serve his purposes to let the rest of the world know that God is good but we'll get to that next week. Listen at what the rest of the verse says as we close out. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now the reason that he strikes the beast as well is because many of the Egyptian gods were gods of animals. So he's making it very clear that there is but one God. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Can you imagine being in Egypt during that time and hearing the broken screams of Egyptian mothers and fathers? Can you imagine what it would have been like to see that many firstborn? Because you got to remember, firstborn doesn't mean just small children. That's firstborn of any and every kind. So this would have been massive. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's cruel. No, it's deliverance. It is God bringing his people out from the death that was sure for them because the Egyptians would have destroyed them and had sought to. And so here, God is rendering judgment on behalf of his people. And he's rendering judgment so that they can be delivered, so that they can worship the Lord their God in fullness. So the question that I have for you is, what judgment has been rendered on your behalf? Do you realize that for you, if you are in union with Christ, judgment has fallen? Where did it fall? It fell fully and totally and exhaustively on Christ, the Lamb of God, who is to take away the sins of his people. There is no more wrath for you. There is no more guilt for you. There is no more shame for you in reality. Isn't that beautiful? How many of you struggle with, don't, this is a rhetorical question, no show of hands, please. How many of you struggle with shame and guilt? At some level, there's just something that, that kind of dogs you and haunts you from time to time that, that, that kind of rears its ugly head momentarily here and there, and you feel the weight of it. What if that which dogs you had the final say on your life? What if that shame and guilt were the period on the end of the sentence? How would it change how you live? It would be destructive, wouldn't it? It would destroy you or cause you to destroy yourself or cause you to destroy others. But instead, you who are in union with Christ, you who have received the broken body and the shed blood, you are able to rise anew and say to that shame and guilt, get behind me because you are as far as the east is from the west and I am bound by you no more. What a beautiful thing that we can say to the thing that would absolutely destroy and kill us because of the beautiful atoning work of the Lamb of God. The other question that I have is if you, if you recognize that judgment has been rendered on the cross eternally on your behalf, how does that affect your worship? How does it affect even your ability to worship? Have you ever even thought about it? Have you ever even made the connection? See, again, this is why remembering is so incredibly important, isn't it? Because it should deeply affect how we worship. It should change fully how we worship. There's an argument to be made that Calvinists, people with Reformed theology, should be the most celebratory of all. Oftentimes we are not, unfortunately. So how do we apply all this? Where should this land for us? I'm not going to read 1 Corinthians 5, 7, but very beautifully, Paul speaks of Christ as our Passover. He says, Christ, our Passover. 
He makes the connection with, from the New Testament and the work of Christ and even the Lord's Supper to this Passover Seder meal that pointed forward to the coming of Christ. So in the Lord's Supper, we have this wonderful opportunity to remember and anticipate these things. Listen to this for just a moment. It's in your bulletin. We get to remember and anticipate that God's desire to dwell with his people in eternal joy in the glorious person and work of Christ. We also get to remember and anticipate God's provision for our deepest need that we have been reconciled in full for eternity in Christ. And we also get to remember and anticipate God's graciousness and mercifulness, his patience, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness and justice as manifest most perfectly in Christ. If any of you were paying attention, that was the summary of the first three sermons in this series. So this table gives us the grand opportunity to look back to the things that we have learned over this series, to the things that God has applied to us, and we get to celebrate those things in full, that this table represent God saying, I want to be with you, my people. This table celebrates God saying, I have provided all that you need to be able to dwell with me in eternity. This table also represents the fullness of who God confessed himself to be in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This table represents the fullness of who God is. So as you come to the Lord's table this morning, after we've done the instructions and you have an opportunity as it, as it, as it comes round, what are you remembering? What are you remembering about God and his goodness? And what are you anticipating? You need to think long and hard on those things you need to make sure that that at least crosses your mind in some fashion because that's what this ultimately represents. And to close out the sermon this morning, let me read from Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Hear God's word one last time this morning. <coughs> Not one last time, I take that back. You'll hear it a couple more times actually. Um, but one last time for the sermon, how's that? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, but more importantly, thank you for the lamb.
who was slain even before the foundation of the world that you, in ways that I can't even begin to comprehend, had provided long before we even knew what we needed. God, thank you for your means of grace and the opportunities for us, your people, to remember and to be reminded of how deeply good you are and how much you love us as most displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would have the courage to remember and to anticipate, to consider who we are in Christ, to work out our salvation even now with fear and trembling, to know that we know who we are in you. God, I pray that we would also have the courage to seek to grant forgiveness to those we may have withheld forgiveness from or to grant peace to those with whom we are not at peace. God, it would be foolish for us to come to this table and not grant others what you have so freely and beautifully and lavishly given to us. God, I pray that this would be a beautiful beginning for many of us this morning. That this, even this day could be the beginning of months for some who maybe didn't previously know who you were and yet have come to a saving faith even today. God, I pray that you would be honored and glorified and that what we are offering to you is a blessing to you. In Christ's name, amen.